Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Investment Editor at FT Advisor. And joining me today are Richard Saldana, Global Equity Fund Manager at Aviva Investors, Mark Prescott, Portfolio Manager at Morningstar, and Guy Foster, Chief Strategist at RBC Bruin Dolphin. Thank you all for joining me this morning. Richard, if we start with you for the first question, how should one view an allocation to large US tech stocks in the current climate? So I, I think with some degree of caution would be my answer to that one. And and look, and you think back to what's been happening this year, and obviously, you know, the key driver in the market has been, you know, that, that wonderful Magnificent Seven tech, US tech companies. But I, I guess taking a step back and, you know, looking at the concentration now of these companies and just taking, you know, let's take the S&P 500 as an example, as a sort of benchmark, look at the weight of these Magnificent Seven companies, and it's almost 30% of the index right now. So, I guess what I would say is for investors, these are great companies and no doubt they will continue to be successful, but just be mindful of that concentration risk, particularly for passive investors that actually, you know, a lot of these benchmarks now are are concentrated in these large mega cap tech companies. So, yeah, I I think for investors, almost sort of buyer beware if you're sort of going to sort of blindly go into passive funds on that basis. Thank you. Um, And Guy, how do you how do you think about that that question? Yeah, I think uh, I think U.S. equity is obviously a very important element of people's portfolios. Um, they have uh, grown in terms of their weightings within the indices, and of course, that's because they've grown in terms of their weightings uh, within the sort of fundamentals that are driving equity markets. They're big, uh, big generators of sales, big generators of profits in many cases. Um, it's quite easy to generalize and think of them as being a relatively narrow basket of technology stocks but of course actually um, they represent uh, a few different industries not loads of different industries but a few different industries Um, obviously autos media those kinds of things Um, and also i think that you've got some different stock characteristics in there as well so some of them um, are extremely profitable and fast growing others are still really sort of offering promise uh, for the future, and definitely, I think the way in which the, the the way in which some of them are revered by a particular sort of fan base probably does mean that the odds of a really good outcome are kind of skewed slightly against the sort of rational investor. Um, but that's what I mean. You know, within that basket of stocks, it's not. It, it, there's no homogeneity. Like they're actually quite different with quite different uh, quite different drivers, and some of them, I think, score, you know, still look very very attractive uh, in terms of their fundamentals, and and very easily justify their valuations. Others, it's a bit more of a stretch. Thank you, and Mark, what are your what are your thoughts on that? The big tech have been it's been a sort of easy thing to do to to own those those seven things this year, and I suspect many clients have uh, been having conversations with their investment managers if their if their investment managers haven't owned them. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with um, b- both of other panelists. I mean, I would look at um, U.S. technology with a degree of caution. I mean, for us, when we um, value our U.S. sectors, U.S. tech stands out to us as the most expensive. And then, and and but they aren't a homogenous group. Those seven stocks. There are consumer discretionary, communication services, and tech. It's actually only three tech companies there. And within those seven, we would see the technology stocks as the most expensive. Apple, in particular. Um, 
And I would also say it's where we've come from. Actually, if you look at January this year, those seven companies and other tech technology firms and uh, um, had sold off egregiously in 2022 and were actually trading at pretty good value. I mean, we had um, some of them at sort of trading at half times their fair value, according to our analysts. And so it was actually a really good opportunity to pick these companies up. And so the returns that you've seen have actually brought a lot of them back to fair value or slightly over, slightly more expensive than taking them from fair value and onwards. And I think that that's a lot of that's been missed by the investor community this year, I think. To follow on from that, I think it's a really good point to remember how brutal that 2022 was for these stocks is like that that plays a big part in the recovery that they've seen. And obviously, one of the main trends this year has been the rise in bond yields, which would typically not be something that supported those kind of companies. Sure, long duration equities are supposed to do badly when bond yields rise, right? Exactly. And so reflection of the fact that of where they were coming from, they were quite undervalued. And a reflection of the fact that obviously, everybody started talking about AI and using chat GPT and all of that sort of stuff that has been really the driver of markets this year. That's been a big supporter. But when you think, but obviously, your question is about, you know, would you hold them now? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, now I think people are a bit more sort of optimistic about where bond yields might be going. So the typical drivers of those kind of stocks actually look okay. Mark, if we if we stick with you for the next question, is in in modern markets in the modern world, is geographical diversification a relevant consideration? And by that I mean, in terms of where the companies are listed rather than where the revenues are generated. Yeah, I mean, this is a very important question for all UK investors. Ultimately, it comes down to home bias, the amount of home bias you have and whether you should reduce that and to what extent you should reduce that. So, I mean, I think it's very intuitive and obvious to say that you want to expand your um, pot of investments, the universe of investments to as wide a range as possible. Ultimately, if you have a to pick from 5,000 global stocks or just 350 UK stocks, you would look to, to fish in, a, in that wider pool. I mean, I think the, the, the one thing I would say that's holding us back in terms of full global geo, de, um, diversification is where we've come from. I mean, 10 years ago, um, every multi-asset portfolio had a big home bias. And I'm sort of pivoting the question to home bias. But yeah, ultimately, that that's how I see it. So, you know, there's been this slow drip down in, in the level of UK equities to, to global equities. I think one thing that's holding us back is that um, we've had a position where the UK equity market is actually pretty good, well-valued. So it's it's dripping it down slowly. But ultimately, I agree with the question, you know, a global, a global approach does make sense. And I think the whole industry is moving towards that. There you go, Richard. A global approach does make sense. I'm sure that's what you were going to say. So uh, you'll have to say something else now. Um, but now, when you're constructing a global equity portfolio, how do you, is, is where the companies are listed a relevant consideration when you're, when you're putting the portfolio together? Yeah, sure. So for me, it, it, it's less about where the companies are listed and it's more about just understanding that diversification within the sort of underlying revenues and profits because yeah, often where a company happens to be listed isn't necessarily that pertinent in terms of where they're deriving their, their revenue. And, and to your point around, you know, we'll, we'll touch on the UK market. We certainly think there's some attractive opportunities there in very well-diversified global multinational companies that are actually 
very much, you know, market leaders in, in, in their industries. So absolutely focus on underlying revenues and, and profits and less on actually where companies happen happen to be domiciled. I think the other thing I'd add just on the whole sort of diversification point is, and this ties into what we we're discussing actually around the, the start with US tech is, is around the geopolitics right now, right? So you particularly look at what's happening with, you know, US-China relations and, okay, maybe some signs there might be some elements of that thawing, but certainly things still pretty pretty you know tight there in terms of in terms of the sort of risk you know the risk that that's playing out and then you think about Taiwan and what's playing out there in terms of relationship relations with China and and this is pertinent particularly you know with regards to the tech industry because we're seeing right now you know tech companies such as Nvidia the ability to sell products into China is clearly challenging in that environment and even you think about Taiwan Semi and almost the sort of kingpin position that they have as as the as the leading supplier, very much almost a sort of monopoly position that they have in terms of supplying chips to to the big U.S. companies. So these geopolitical tensions that are playing out and will continue to play out, I, I think, also mean that investors need to think, of, you know, particularly about what that means from a diversification standpoint as well. So, yeah, absolutely. I think having a global perspective, trying to have that, build that diversification into portfolios, I think is more relevant than ever. And uh, Guy, as chief strategist at RBC Bruin Dolphin, how do you how do you think about that? Is is one of the things that you have to ponder which stock market things are, are listed on or, or is it is it a bigger picture than, than that? We do guide based upon geographical allocation, but what we... You know what? It, ultimately, the the value of that guidance depends upon how you're investing. If you are building a portfolio of funds, then typically you probably want to give some consideration to geographical approach, um, because not least because actually the funds tend to be geographical in nature. There are obviously some global funds, um, and uh, I think there's probably an increasing cohort of global funds. But certainly what we found is that actually um, you lose a bit of control over your own asset allocation if you're using global funds. Often you will find that they haven't got the sort of geographical spread that you were after. And why does that matter? Well, I mean, it sort of matters indirectly, really. You know, it's not so much that you like this market because, as as, as the question is, like, because the companies are listed there. It's sort of, you know, it's like that whole thing about is, is it the stock market or is it a market of stocks? Like different regions have different characteristics. Um, and the US, as we've already alluded to, is highly profitable, fast growing, um, effectively quite high quality uh, index. Um, and compared to, the, or at least certain parts of it are, and those parts tend to dominate. Um, and against that, other regions tend to be more value focused, somewhat less uh, high in quality, almost certainly have slower growth. And so it's not like that we particularly want something just because it's in the US, but you're more likely to find those characteristics um, in that region. So when you tend to think about geographical allocation, you're saying, well, what's that geography bringing to me? And then if we're going to invest directly, as if we're going to be just buying shares, actually all of this sort of geographical stuff kind of slightly goes out the window because then we're just literally going directly to the companies that we're wanting to invest in. Um, but it, as I say, yeah, passive funds, it matters a huge amount. Active funds, it matters a bit less directly. It sort of doesn't matter at all. Thank you. Um, in your answer there, Guy, you, you, you said that um, 
money markets have have their own characteristics. Mm. The characteristics of of the UK market, particularly the value factors presence in the UK market, is something that's much discussed. It's all it's discussed almost as much as the fact that there have been extensive outflows from UK equity funds in in recent years. But putting those two things together, really, do you regard the UK equity market as as an attractive place to find opportunities right now? Well. The two things that the two things you mentioned there, obviously, are kind of driving each other and the home buyers that Mark mentioned earlier and stuff like that. Obviously, people had a big home bias. That home bias has been being unwound over a you know relatively long period of time, and that seems to lead to um, net outflows from from UK based funds. Now that's a kind of special situation of sorts, and so straight away, I think you should be quite interested in the opportunities it throws up. But I think with the with the rise of a few more global funds and with the strong performance of the quality style, the the best quality companies in the UK don't tend to trade that cheap relative to their global counterparts. And it's more the uh, I mean other people might disagree with that, but that's that's this is what this is what we find. Sure, sure. But actually in some cases you almost find the opposite, that you actually have to pay a bit of a premium for a European or a UK really high-quality growth company because there aren't very many to, sure. to to choose from. But I do think there's a lot of mid-market kind of stocks that have been offloaded as a result of this reduction in home bias and where actually quite reasonable performance, not like set the world on fire performance, but quite reasonable performance seems to be a little bit undervalued. Richard, as a global equity manager, are you are you finding many opportunities in the in the UK market r- right now, or is is the the pool of investable stocks increasing or or, or shrinking? Yeah, I, I I think there's some great opportunities there, and I'd, I'd actually almost take somewhat the other side and say I think there's some great quality UK listed companies that actually trade on on a discount to their counterparts, and I'll give you a couple of examples. So take London Stock Exchange. So. The name is a complete misnomer because the revenues that actually are derived from the London Stock Exchange are sort of minimal. We're talking low single-digit revenues, but it's an international business, you know, very much focused on data analytics. Obviously, the Refinitiv acquisition has almost sort of turbocharged that, but a high degree of recurring revenue, very high-quality business, but trades on a discount to some of its, you know, U.S. counterparts. The fact is listed in the U.K. for us is neither here nor there. It's a global company. Relax in the information services domain, again, you look at the strength of the business model, particularly relevant in terms of the, the databases that they have and, you know, whether it be tax, legal, healthcare, a whole range of sort of industries that, that they sell to. But again, a company that, you know, we talk about AI and how it's turbocharged Magnificent 7. We think this is a tailwind for, for Alexa's business, given this, you know, the, the proprietary nature of the data and the customer customer relationship. So again, trades on a discount to some of the US information services peers. So the fact that you know investors may be shunning away from the UK and, and some of these companies as part of that because they happen to be US listed, for us as global investors, you know, is, is great news because these companies are trading on a discount and they're very high quality, certainly from a return on capital and, and cash generation standpoint. So again, the US UK for us is is very much we think you can find some great companies out there and you know can continue to do so. Mark, what are your thoughts on that? You mentioned the the home bias which which as Guy also alluded to has been impacting, I guess, demand for UK equity funds and, and probably for UK equities. But uh, are we at that that maybe a tipping point where where there are lots of of, of opportunities there yeah i mean 
the, I, I, you know, the home bias, I think, is a you know big driver of why the why the UK market is unloved. That sort of wave of outflows, Morningstar data, you can just, just see it month mm-hmm. on month, quarter on quarter. So, but taking that aside, we do see UK as as, as undervalued, and we're we're overweight. Our, our neutral, our neutral is a lot lower than it was five years ago. But regardless of that, we we do like the UK markets. You know, got to remember that. 75% of the revenues from the FTSE 100 come from overseas, and it's actually just sort of a, a disparate group at the top end of the 100 of, of large multinationals deriving their revenues from all over the world. And when we look at a lot of the peers, we we actually eyeball up the, you know, HSBC versus a global counterparts of our UK banks, and very much we see discounts there and, and, and undervaluation across the piece. The, the danger is it's, it's, it's not a, it's a narrow a narrow um, sort of sector mix. It's quite sensitive to the oil price, so energy and materials make up around sort of nearly 25% of the index. 1.4% is tech. So it, it has its own characteristics. It's unique characteristics you have to be mindful of and perform very well in 2022 when we had sort of inflation and that's commodity sensitivity. So, you know, but taking that aside, you know, ultimately it, it's trading at below its fair value and we would ascribe an overweight there. Guy, one of the points that was touched on earlier, but I, I guess is a constant debate in, in markets is around is around valuation and, you know, those mm. many of those who are relatively bearish on those big US stocks would, would say valuation matters and it's an elastic and the elastic can't stretch forever, although it seems to be at the moment. But in a world where we potentially have higher inflation than many investors or clients have been used to, but also where growth is not particularly high. Does the quality of the of the company, the quality of its earnings, whether it's got a moat in, in I think, uh, investment jargon, uh, does that actually matter more than valuation? Is it worth igno- almost ignoring valuation to pay up for for uh, the best uh, companies in the in the climate that we've got? Uh, no, um, quality would normally yeah. Quality is a factor, right? And it, it can be measured in a, a few different ways. And one of those would be profitability. You know, that's probably the most common. And so when you think about what a company is worth, um, you know, the valuation is supposed to capture what the company is worth. But the value, and, and so people will say, oh, the PE, on a PE of 26 or something, this company is very expensive. But, I mean, it's just that's a very two-dimensional way of valuing a company, which actually nobody would really nobody would really use that to make an educated decision on whether to buy a company or not. What they would typically think about is, you know, what's the uh, how fast is the company growing and how profitable is the company? If the company is very profitable and growing very fast, then it ends up on a, a high valuation. And there's no kind of rocket science to that. Um, but the challenge, you know, whenever you're looking at a market and saying, oh, is this market expensive? Is this market cheap? Is that you've got to take into account things like basically how are people, how people, how are people valuing that market? What are their expectations for uh, earnings growth or sales growth? And what are their, uh, and how, how profitable is that market? None of those things really are captured by the PE. So to take those stocks that we were looking at earlier, we've got, you know, the the big stocks, some of them are on, you know, vast multiples, but valued on the the basis of an increase in profitability that's going to come way down, way down the the, the line. And others are hugely profitable here and now, which is kind of the the point I was trying to 
to to make a little bit earlier. One final point, I guess, on quality, because um, your question could imply that we could just buy a sort of quality ETF or something like that, and mm-hmm. that, that you know that this is the optimum environment for that kind of strategy. And I would say this, you know, that kind of strategy has had its optimum environment for really quite a long period of time. Falling bond yields has tended to be quite supportive for quality characteristics, which often have a growth element to them and certainly have a sort of earning stability type aspect. And so I think now um, it's probably an all right strategy, but it's not going to have the kind of tailwind that you've had really for the last 30 years or so. Mark, how, how do you think about that? Is, 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 is it wise in this uncertain time to focus on the companies about which we know most, about which there's the most durability, the most track record, and the most perhaps immediacy of of earning. So, I mean, I think we're talking about an environment with maybe high, higher inflation and higher bond yields. So, you know, the quality factor, you know, it makes intuitive sense a, a company with a moat, a competitive moat, will be able to protect its profits margins better than, say, a, a company with high leverage or maybe not so such... Um, wide competitive advantage. I think that make that kind of makes sense to most investors. That said, when you actually look at the numbers of the quality factor and how it's performed over, you know, the last hundred years in different inflationary periods, it, it does okay, but it doesn't sm- it doesn't smash the lights out. And actually, sort of a commodity strategy does, you know, a, a commodity equities do, do do a little bit better. Uh, and the value factor has its day occasionally. So in the nineteen seventies. When the, the the energy price rises, actually the value factor was a far better. And you look back at 2022, you know, quality really really sort of fell over. So to, to the the idea that quality will do, you know, it's for all things or for all markets at all times. I think it's just it's just a wrong. And I I agree that they have had this you know big tailwind. We may go back to that. You know, maybe central banks can tame inflation and we get bond yields back at one two percent and inflation at target, and then. We're off to the races for the quality factor, but I think you know balanced approaches. And when you know if we, the actual looking at if it in a high, if we believe inflation is is an issue and we have sticky inflation, I'm, I'm not sure quality will will do as well as it, as it has done in the past. And if we go back to it, we won't go back to the move from sort of eight percent bond yields down to zero percent bond yields. Yeah. We'll just go down to a sort of stable, yeah. slightly lower bond yields kind of environment. Yeah, yeah I, I think the point. Yeah, sure. I, th- I think the point on inflation is 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 the way to think about this as well, right? Because you know, I think it's important to a identify what you mean by quality. For us, absolutely, it's about having you know sustained profitability, which we think is probably the best defense against you know elevated inflation and rising input costs. Then you think about a higher interest rate environment and trying to find companies that are productive in terms of their capital. I companies that have high returns on capital and a capital like business model we think is also important. So you tie those things together. For us, that's really what you know our perception of, of quality is. Now, to me, the valuation part comes in in terms of having a margin of safety. So you always want to try and find quality companies, but you also want to make sure that the price that you're paying for that quality is is also appropriate. And this is you know where I think you, you highlighted this as well, Mark. Looking at you know some of these magnificent seven stocks. Whereas for us, the quality for us has always been enduring. You think about a company such as Microsoft at the sort of tail end of, of 2021 was trading on 50 times earnings. Now, we'd argue at that point you were paying a very high 
premium, almost overpaying, frankly, for the quality on offer. Fast forward barely a couple of quarters later, obviously with the sharp rise in interest rates, Microsoft was trading on 20 times earnings. The quality was always there for us, but the price the market was willing to pay changed drastically and went from being you know, arguably an overvalued company to an undervalued company at 20 times earnings. So that's for us is important to always understand that quality characteristic, but always understand that the price that you're paying for it as well. That's the paradox, right? Because that was in response to an inflationary environment. So we have to be quite careful about this assertion that quality is a good defense against uh, against inflation because the big change in inflation, you know, a lot a lot of those companies that would have those quality characteristics, the high margins weren't weren't uh, defensive or not in share price p- p- terms precisely because of the valuation unwinding because uh, when inflation picks up, interest rates pick up, and anything that's got that kind of long trajectory of, of earnings growth is going gonna, is gonna to struggle in that environment. So over the long term, sure, yeah, it's, it's, it, that these are exactly the kind of companies that defend your wealth, but over the short term, they can be very volatile. But w- was there not an element, though, that the reason they didn't outperform in, say, 2022 was because they sell products for which there's a kind of constant demand and the market was more focused on um, more cyclical type uh, enterprises because at that time consumer spending was was very high, although interest rates were slowing down. There was this COVID era savings glut that everybody was, was chasing and quality companies don't necessarily benefit from that to the same extent if they sell products for which there's a constant demand. People don't double the amount of those that they buy. They double the amount of restaurant meals or holidays that they that they take well look there's a there's a lot to un- unpack there but i think principally it would be the fact that bond yields went up yeah. so sharply mm-hmm. but um you know things that we've touched on already having a bit of a home bias or having a bit of energy in there with your tech exposure you know whether that's a geographical or a, just a portfolio construction decision that really proved its worth during during 2022 because that probably was the the asset category that really performed well and provided that defense against inflation and ironically of course there was you 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 get some quite strong performance from commoditized products in an inflationary environment or when you have a sharp change in the inflationary environment which is sort of the opposite of what you would expect where mm-hmm. And then you have other categories like luxury where you've got really high gross margins and actually they've, they're big on quality and they are able to defend in that kind of uh, that, that kind of environment. So, you know, we can generalise up to a point, um, but uh, th- there are always sort of exceptions, I guess, that kind of prove the rule. And so, uh, Richard, um, bringing all of those things together, what lessons from the equity market of 2023 could be of value for us to take into 2024? Yeah, and, and just to maybe square the circle, it goes back to, I think, that concentration point. So very much this year has been, you know, driven by that sort of narrow cohort of, of, of big US tech stocks. And I guess, you know, the point would be going into next year, is that likely to continue? We think that leadership could be challenged. I mean, these are great companies, as we highlighted, very cash generative, strong balance sheets, clearly strong tailwinds for growth for many of them. But, you know, I think you are likely to see some some more breadth in terms of the the market leadership, certainly if you think historically, I mean, it's interesting, again, going back to the S&P 500, one of the stats is if you look at the number of stocks that are actually outperforming, it's tw- it's just over 20%. 
Now that number is normally 40, 50% on a, on a sort of year, year, year basis. So it gives you some idea of just how narrow the leadership has been, particularly in the US market. So I think that would be very welcome if we did see that um, in terms of sort of a wider breadth and certainly for a, from an active stock picking element, I think that would certainly be welcome. But, but yeah, I, I think as we go into next year, I, I, I suspect some of that leadership you may see being challenged. And certainly history has shown us when you do get those periods of such high degrees of concentration within markets that that tends to unwind somewhat. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but but yeah, I suspect some more breadth in the market, which, I, as I said, I think would be very welcome. Thank you. And Mark, uh, what is 2023 thought you that will be that will help you shape your, your 2024 thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I that back to that point, you know, ultimately we're valuation driven investors and we're trying to sort of seek out alpha from undervalued assets, but they can be growth stocks, etc. And, you know, 2020 coming into 2023, we had the opportunity to really beef up your US growth exposure. You know, a lot of these stocks were trading at cheap value. So it's it sort of cemented the idea that value, value matters. There has been actually a bit more success from active stock pickers outside the US. I've seen it in the UK. We'll see what happens in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, um, a lot of the fund managers have managed to sort of navigate the, the, the landscape pretty well. So, you know, we don't, you know, we still feel that there's a place for active active management, active fund managers within portfolios. And, you know, we've been talking about equities, but, you know, I... I focus a lot a lot of my time on bonds as well so the, the just a fixed income market is offering um much better um yields for investors and actually that's your your long-term assumptions or, or your future expected returns from a moderate portfolio are, are materially higher as a result um at, you know following it, the year we've had so you know i'd go into 2024 with a with a uh, outlook of, of some optimism in, in that respect. Thank you. And Guy, uh, as a as a strategist, what has what has twenty twenty three um, taught taught us about where where the mar- world is, where markets are that we can that we can maybe use for for the year ahead. Well, it's probably not a new lesson, I suppose, but it's reinforced the fallibility of economic forecasting because obviously this was the year of recession. Recession didn't happen. Recession would normally be quite bad, you know, at least moderately bad for equity equity, uh, prices. Um, But as it's turned out, no recession. Markets done considerably better than probably people's estimates at uh, at the beginning of the year. So I think that's one... Um, important takeaway. We've already alluded to the fact that uh, correlations between macro factors and uh, individual stocks, sectors, styles can change. So we have had this rather dramatic outperformance of uh, of where bond yields would tell you things like tech ought to be, um, reflecting, of course, the optimism around artificial intelligence. So that, again, also tells you that um, even where you've got a sort of secular trend in place, um, it doesn't ne- it it doesn't unwind on a linear basis. You know, it's quite lumpy. So suddenly, we have seen this material increase in earning long-term earnings estimates for a bunch of stocks. Um, I think looking at the the market leadership, um, the headline, of course, is that 
stocks have got more expensive, but actually of the of the controversial ones that we've been talking about on this occasion, I think three of them have got cheaper and five, and four of them have got more expensive. So it's a, it's a bit of a wash in that, but it's just that some have trumped the effects of the others. And then I think another factor that's quite interesting that we've learned this year probably relates to the pricing power of OPEC+. Plus. You know, as the year's coming to to an end, um, it's felt a bit like the the market and investors were going to get bullied by OPEC uh, this year, but actually they're really struggling to maintain sort of discipline. Um, and I think that's quite helpful in terms of how the inflationary environment might unwind and the sort of tailwind that might give to consumers and therefore where, um, you know, the, the uh, market and demand might go going into 2024. Thank you for that, Guy Foster, Chief Strategist at RBC Bruin Dolphin. And thank you also to Richard Saldana, Global Equity Fund Manager at Aviva Investors, and Mark Prescott, Portfolio Manager at Morningstar. Thank you all for joining me, and thank you all for listening. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.